I've been asked to speak about this topic, daily life and practice of Buddhism in the West. And I think the first question that comes up is, is there anything special about the practice of Buddhism in the West that is different from the practice of Buddhism anywhere at any time in history? Is there anything special about us? And why would we be interested to know if there's something special about us in the West now? It could be best of reasons that we face various difficulties and we'd like to know are there some extra difficulties that we face that we need to work on and overcome or for a much less noble reason it could be because we're looking for an excuse to not have to practice as hard or intensively as other people in other parts of the world at other times. In other words, we're looking for a bargain to get enlightenment cheap. So let's put that type of motivation aside and look more seriously at are there any specific difficulties that we face. Now, if we look at the most basic things which are involved in the Buddhist path and what we have to work with, I think we'd have to say that there is nothing special about us at all. I don't think we could say that now in the West, in this present time, we have more anger or more greed or more selfishness than people have had elsewhere in the world or people have had in the past. People have been working with the same disturbing emotions all over this universe and throughout time. So that is nothing special about now, is there? And the number of sentient beings has not increased so throughout time and everywhere. We've all been faced, everybody has been faced with the incredible challenge of wanting to reach enlightenment to benefit so many people, so many beings, I should say. So that's the same. So we've spoken, if we think in terms of the graded path of Lam Rim, the intermediate scope aiming for liberation from disturbing emotions, same now as it's been in the past or elsewhere, working for enlightenment to help everybody, same, same number of beings as there always has been. And if we speak about the initial scope, pardon me for not speaking in the proper order, but the initial scope is to improve future lives, guarantee that we continue to have a precious human rebirth. Well, that hasn't changed at all, has it? We all have beginningless mental continuums, which means that we have been born in other parts of the world, other parts of the universe, and all previous times, and we've always faced future rebirths and needing to try to ensure that we have a precious human one. So that's the same. So what's different? Is there anything different? Well, some people might say that our circumstances are different. We have, for instance, very stressful lives. We're very busy. Well, has a struggling farmer in times of the Middle Ages who has had to work in the fields 16 hours or more a day, have they been less busy than we are working in an office? Their activity may have been different, but they certainly were as busy. 
And cave people, didn't they have a lot of stress and worry about wild animals and these sort of things? A lot of fears, fears of lightning or thunder, things that they didn't understand. People have always lived with fear and stress, haven't they? How about living in the times when there was the bubonic plague? We think that we have stress and fear now. How about if we lived then? So I don't think we could say that what is so special about us is that our lives are so busy and stressful. It might be a different flavor of busy, different flavor of stressful in terms of the activities we're involved with, but stress, worry, no time, that's been going on all the time, everywhere. Well, we could also say that our society, our culture, doesn't share any or many of the fundamental assumptions that you have in Buddhism, so it's really very alien to us. But if we look at the example of Buddhism coming to China, Chinese didn't believe in rebirth. Chinese have always thought in terms of ancestors, and when you die, there's some sort of spirit or soul of ancestors that lives on, and you have to make offerings to the ancestors. That's quite different from rebirth, isn't it? If you think of rebirth, ancestors are no longer around as spirits of ancestors, are they? And so it took quite a while for the Chinese to understand a lot of these very fundamental, basic Buddhist concepts And so when we face the similar challenge, that's nothing new, that's nothing special. So I think that realizing that we're not special, it can be very helpful. If you think of teenagers, or not even necessarily teenagers, but people who have a certain type of problem, let's say their parents were alcoholic or whatever, They often think, I'm the only one who has this problem, and then the problem becomes really very, very large to them. But if they learn that there are many, many others who face the same type of problem, then they are not alone. They don't feel alone. Their problem fits into a larger context. They get a very different perspective on it. And optimally, they would develop compassion for everybody else with a similar problem. And rather than thinking of it simply as my problem, now they start thinking of it as our problem. And when something becomes our problem rather than my problem, it's very different emotionally and psychologically. So I think it's the same in terms of daily practice of Buddhism. It really is everybody's problem. How do we apply Buddhism to life? It's not my special problem, me individually, or me culturally, individually living in the West now in our present age. It's just that the conditions are different from one point of view. The specifics are different, I should say. Now, there are many different levels of practice of Buddhism and how we would go about applying it into our daily life. There is a very, very superficial level which doesn't really do very much to change us internally. And then there's a a deeper level, 
in which we're actually working on ourselves, working on our personalities, working toward the goals of liberation and enlightenment. Now, in the beginning, many people are attracted to this superficial level, and so they deal with externals. By externals, I mean you have to have a red blessing string around your uh, neck or around your wrist or both, and wear a mala, you know, a rosary of beads around the other wrist, and maybe when we're walking around or sitting, then you thumb the rosary and mumble something and we have to have a good supply of incense and candles and all the proper meditation cushions and Tibetan paintings and pictures and if we really go far in this direction we might even start to wear some sort of Tibetan clothing. I remember when I first went to India in 1969 when I started living there That was the height of the hippie era. And there were very few Westerners who were there at that time, but many of them dressed fully in Tibetan exotic robes and costumes and things like that. And I was rather judgmental about the whole thing and thought that it was offensive to the Tibetans that these Westerners were just mimicking them and copying them. And at that time, I was living with a Tibetan monk, and so I asked him, what do Tibetans think of these Westerners who go around dressed in Tibetan clothes? And he said, we think that they like Tibetan clothes. (laughs) (laughs) So no judgment there whatsoever. It was very, very helpful. But whether we are judgmental about it or not, just changing our clothing wearing a rosary around our wrist, having many blessing cords, red strings around our neck, doesn't really change us very much, does it, internally? And so I think that particularly in the West, it's not such a great idea to go around with all of this because it brings about people making fun of us. If a woman is dressed in a very beautiful, elegant dress for an evening event and they have some dirty red strings around their neck. That doesn't quite look proper, does it? So I always advise people if they would like to keep these red blessing cords, keep it in their wallet, keep it in their pocket, keep it in their pocketbook, whatever. You don't have to actually display it. Displaying it doesn't bring more quote-unquote blessings, does it? (laughs) And if you want to say mantras, the same thing. You don't have to bring out your rosary and make a whole big show out of it. You can say it silently in your mind if you are in a crowd or on a bus or whatever. So this is what I mean by a slightly changed circumstance that we have. If we're in a society in which such type of behavior or such type of strings would look pretty weird, then... There's no need to have them externally. And if our practicing Buddhism is simply wearing these strings, then obviously that's not a very deep practice of Buddhism and not very helpful. Actually, if you look at the way that Tibetans deal with these strings, they only wear them for a short period of time. They don't just wear them until they really get dirty and horrible wear it for a short period of time and then retire them, put them on their altar or something like that. 
So I think the advice that we have in the seven points of attitude training or mind training, Lojong, is very helpful here, which is transform internally, but leave your external form consistent with what is ordinarily around. So it's best to keep our practice private. This is particularly true if we are lay practitioners living in a non-Buddhist society. Now, if we're monks or nuns, that's something different. That becomes a big issue. How do we practice as Westerners living in Western society as monks and nuns? Do we wear our robes to work? That's not an easy one, particularly because it was never intended that Buddhist monks and nuns go and work in the ordinary workforce. The whole point of becoming a monk or a nun was to live in a monastery with other monks and nuns. And if you did a retreat, you went off to, from your monastery to a cave or whatever and then came back to your monastery. So it was always in connection with a whole community of others who were likewise dressed and involved in the same type of activity. So this becomes a major problem. How do we become monks and nuns as Westerners and how do we practice if we don't have Western monasteries or we have very few Western monasteries well we look at historical examples the Mongols adopted Tibetan Buddhism and before monasteries were well established and supported in Mongolia you want to become a monk or a nun and seriously practice you went to Tibet and studied there in a monastery. And so, as Westerners, we're no different. There's nothing special. The Mongols didn't know Tibetan. It was a completely alien language. They had to learn it, and so do we. It wasn't easy for them to go to Tibet, and they had to walk. We at least don't have to walk to India or Nepal. And they faced difficulties. We would also need to face difficulties. We're not going to get it cheap. And it's important to try to establish monasteries and nunneries in the West. And then we could say, for instance, well, but we don't have the custom of begging. If we went around barefoot in our city with a begging bowl, and when you beg as a monk or a nun, you're not even supposed to ask for anything. You just walk by, and people are supposed to know to give you food and so on, we are likely to go very hungry. The Tibetans didn't go around with their begging bowls. Uh, Distances were very far in Tibet to go into town, but the society developed in such a way that people brought food to the monastery, so very nice. And the government supported the monastery, so they were given land, and they got, there were various people who worked on the land and gave a certain percentage to the monasteries, so the system worked. But that took quite a while to evolve. But the Chinese had no tradition of begging, and the monks and nuns in China did not beg. They slightly modified the system so that the monks and nuns actually worked in the monastery, and they had fields, and they did their own agriculture. And so in the West we probably will have to do something similar that in the monasteries and nunneries, in order to practice Buddhism and support themselves, they probably will have to 
be involved with some sort of work. If we look in India, things have developed a little bit in that direction. In the monasteries in the south of India, they were given land by the government of India. In the beginning, the monks farmed the land. Everybody had to farm the land. And if they were able to get support, either from their family or from foreign patrons or whatever, then they would hire local Indians to work in the fields for them. So the point of this is that if we're going to be a monk or a nun, then I think it's important to try to work within the boundaries of being a monk or a nun. Somehow we're going to have to be self-supporting and you continue to wear the robes. The robes are very significant. I remember Geshe Wangyal. He was Kalmuk Mongol, the first teacher that I met. He lived in America, and he was not very keen on having his Western students become monks or nuns. But if you did become a monk or a nun, what he would have you do is sit in your robes right next to the checkout counter in the supermarket with your begging bowl. He said, if you're going to be a monk or a nun, here's what you have to do. You're not going to get off cheap in terms of, what should we say, ignoring most of the traditions. But I think that what this discussion leads to is the fact that practicing Buddhism in the West requires getting teachings, and getting teachings in the West requires money. This, I think, is one of the very difficult points and one of the points that is fairly unique in Buddhist history. Usually you didn't have to pay to get teachings. You made offerings, but it wasn't required that you pay at the door in order to get in. So what does Buddhist practice require? What it requires... We're not talking about money, not that it requires money. If we're talking about real Buddhist practice, real Buddhist practice requires working on ourselves, transforming ourselves. Practice of transforming ourselves is not something which is done through rituals. We could learn how to do a ritual and recite mumbo-jumbo in some foreign language that we don't understand at all and learn when we say this syllable, you ring a bell, and when you say that syllable, you play a drum. And in the end, so what? It doesn't transform us at all. We still get angry. We still can't get along with our parents and so on. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says that practicing these rituals when we have no understanding of what we're doing really is not going to get us very far. That really is not so helpful. Practice of Buddhism is, says very clearly, both Nagarjuna, Ayadeva, all the great Indian masters said, all comes down to tame your mind. And tame your mind means, first of all, to learn the teachings, learn the methods of how to deal with disturbing emotions and problematic situations and to analyze various situations that we're in, try to remain mindful, which means to remember the teachings and apply them in different situations so that it can help us to overcome at least the ordinary problems that we have in life, like 
anger, like worry, like nervousness, like not getting along with our parents, this type of things. Dealing with frustration, dealing with sickness, dealing with old age, problems in relationships, problems with your children, all these things. This is the field in which we work with Buddhism. So we need to transform ourselves. We need to work on ourselves, improve our personalities. And to do that requires a tremendous amount of work. That's not very easy to do. We have to develop patience. We have to develop perseverance, concentration, all of these things. But our tendency in the West is to want things easy, to want things quickly, and to want them cheap. We want all the teachings instantly. We want to gain all the wonderful things that we read about, that the Buddha has attained, and so on, with the least amount of work as possible. So the fact that teachings cost something at least causes us to think on many levels of why does it cost something? Well, Dharma centers need to pay rent. Teachers need to buy food and health insurance and pay their rent, etc. So some money is needed if you don't have people that just willingly give offerings like was done in Tibet in traditional Buddhist societies. So if we want teachers, if we want facilities, somehow they need to be supported, either voluntarily or you have to pay an admission. But that is just one level of reason. That's on a practical level. But I think there's a deeper level here. And the deeper level is that if you want to receive something which is precious, namely the teachings, you're going to have to put a great deal of effort and work into getting it. Otherwise, you don't really appreciate it. So if we look at history, then in order to invite various teachers to Tibet, not only did the Tibetans need to walk to India to invite them, but they also gathered all sorts of resources, not just to pay for the journey, but as offerings and so on. So they put a tremendous amount of effort into getting the teachings. And a lot of people then needed to make great sacrifices in order to get the teachings. Look at what Marpa made Milarepa go through in order to get the teachings. So in a sense, if we really want the teachings, then we need to make some effort to get the money together, for example, or to travel to India, or to travel to a place where the teachings are available, if they're not available where we live. Now it is possible. I mean, you people here in Latvia lived under the Soviet Union. You couldn't travel very far or go anywhere or move. If you wanted to move to a different location where teachings were available, now teachings are available. You can move much more easily, especially now as a member of the EU. So you need to take advantage of that and not just say, well, but there's nothing available where I live or very little available where I live. I don't mean to sound harsh, but if we really, really are serious about transforming ourselves, working on, on ourselves with the Dharma and so on, this requires a tremendous commitment. 
It has to have top priority in our lives. And we have to have the courage and the bravery and the energy to make whatever moves or do whatever is necessary to get the optimum circumstances for study and practice. And if we are not as serious as that, then fine, but acknowledge that. I would like to learn a little bit about Buddhism. Maybe it can help me a little bit in my life, but I am not willing to relocate if the circumstances aren't fine where I am and it doesn't have top priority in my life. There are other things that are more important. If that's our situation, fine, no problem, but be honest about it. And that's perfectly fine, but don't expect to get the type of results that we might get if we put full time and full effort into it. You have to be realistic. Put in a little bit of time, you get a little bit of result. You put in a lot of time, you get larger result, maybe. Obviously, we each have different obstacles, but that's a generalization. So I think in the West, in the present days, what is a bit different is that most people seem to prefer to practice as lay people, not as monks or nuns. This is very different from traditional Buddhism. And because of that, rather than having so many monasteries and nunneries for monks and nuns, we have Dharma centers. There was no such thing as Dharma centers before Buddhism started to develop in the West. So then the question comes, what do we expect to achieve from going to a Dharma center? I go once a week after work, I'm really tired, and half the time I sleep if there's a talk. Maybe I just go and I sing a song in uh, Tibetan language. I don't really know what's going on, but it's relaxing, and I ring a bell, and I go home. So what result can we expect from that? Not so much. And what's really sad, I find, is that the Dharma Center is not even really a social club, in a sense, like going to church. You know, when you go to, whether it's speaking about Christianity or Judaism or Islam, there's a sense of a congregation that these are the members of your church or synagogue or mosque or whatever, and there's a sense of community. We're not talking here about a sectarian sense, but on a deeper sense of social interaction. So what is noticeable in these other non-Buddhist religious communities is that if someone is sick in the community, other people in the community help. They might bring food. They ask if somebody has not been coming for a week or two. They call up. They check up on what's going on, etc. This seems to be missing in most of our Dharma centers. The people come. They sit in class or they do a meditation or they do a puja together and that's it. Maybe they go out for a beer afterwards, which is a little bit odd from a Dharma center, but in any case, I hear so many complaints from people who say, you know, what is Buddhism all about? I've been sick and nobody called. I was in the hospital. Nobody came to visit. Nobody cared. And so if our daily practice 
as a Buddhist in the West just means that we go by ourselves to a Dharma center, do our little puja or listen to a talk or whatever it is that we do, and we go home and maybe we do you know, a little bit of meditation each day, but we don't care about even the other people who are part of our Dharma center. What is this? You know, we sit there and we say, I'm doing this for all sentient beings. May all sentient beings be happy. But someone in our Dharma center is in the hospital. And I don't have time to go visit. And, you know, what do I care? This is not proper. I mean, if our daily practice of Buddhism in the West is like that, something's wrong. So I think often we become a little bit too focused, too narrow, shall I say, in our focus on doing pujas, doing meditation by ourselves or in a group, but not really socially taking responsibility to help, as I say, even people in our group, let alone our family, let alone our community. And even when we get social, so-called engaged Buddhism starting in the West, well, it started actually in Thailand, but in any case, we start to have it. And so in some Buddhist centers, they have prison programs, for example. And so a few people volunteer and they go to the prisons and they have Dharma lessons for prisoners. Very nice. They still don't get along with their parents. They still don't go to visit somebody who's sick or bring food to somebody who's sick in their center. But because they go to the prisons, then they think, ah, well, I've done my social duty. That's not enough. Okay, now to get down to what do we actually do each day as a practicing Buddhist. There are certain types of uh, practices that are recommended each day, and they are helpful. And it means having Buddhism integrated as part of our whole day, not just as something that we do as a hobby, a little time during the day or during the week, but we forget about it the rest of the time. Now, one point is important here, which is the whole point of being a nice, kind person. Being a Buddhist doesn't just mean to be a kind person but it means something in addition to being a kind person. So, of course, we have to be a kind person. That is the basis, but that's not exclusive to the Buddhist teachings. All religions teach us to be a kind person, and you don't even have to follow a religion to be taught that it's important to be a kind person. So, of course, we try in our daily life to be of help to others, and if we can't be of help, at least not to hurt others, you know, sort of the basic minimum. And if we want to say, that's my Buddhist practice, okay, but don't think that that's the real thing, Buddhism. That's a very light version. But an absolutely necessary thing, not something to be ignored. So, fine, and we try to learn what it means to be a kind person, and to be mindful of when we're not acting like that and to correct it. And this involves not getting angry with others. If we do get angry, apologize as quickly as possible. Try to be less selfish. Try to be sensitive to other people's needs. 
the effect of our behavior on others, all these sort of things, very basic. If we are involved in some sort of business, try to be honest in the business. If we deal with customers, if we're in some sort of service business, to remember that they're human beings just like I am, and they like to be treated nicely, not to be ignored or dismissed in a very unpleasant way. The last customer of the day deserves as much attention and care and pleasantness as the first of the day. All of this is what His Holiness the Dalai Lama refers to as basic human values, not necessarily based on any philosophy or religion. And not just with strangers, where it's a little bit easier because you just see them for a few minutes and then you don't have to deal with them after that, but with the members of our family, the people that we live with, the people that we work with, etc. Don't ignore those that are closest to us. Classic example in the West, we go to visit our parents or we're staying with our parents and they would like us to sit and watch television with them. And I remember when my mother was alive and I would visit her, she would like for me to watch television with her and the quiz shows, she loved quiz shows, and would always encourage me to try to answer the questions on the quiz shows, like how much does this refrigerator cost? (laughs) And in these type of situations, it's very important to be generous, generous with our time, not sit there and look totally bored, not sit there and take out our rosary and do mantras (laughs) while we're sitting there in front of the TV, but actually... Be generous to our parents. Give them this time. Try to answer the questions, no matter how stupid it might seem to us. Now, we might not have to sit there the whole night. We can say, you know, I have other things that I need to do, but I'll sit with you for a half hour or an hour, whatever it is. But be kind. Don't say cruel things like, oh, come on, that's so stupid. It's such a waste of time. I have better things to do than that. You know, that's one of the bodhisattva vows, one of the secondary vows. Go along with what the other person is doing so long as it's not destructive. So if we are a Buddhist practitioner, when we get up in the morning, very important, it says this in so many texts, set the intention for the day. What is our motivation? Motivation, remember, was what is the goal that we're trying to achieve What am I doing with my life? What is the emotion behind that? And then the intention to actually pursue that goal. When we wake up, ideally it should be, thank goodness I didn't die during my sleep. And how wonderful that now I have a whole day ahead in which I can work further along the Buddhist path. Rather than, oh, not another day. (laughs) The same thing when we go to sleep, rather than, oh, thank God the day is finished and uh, can't wait to just sort of drop into unconsciousness, more I can't wait until I wake up next morning to continue. So what does this all come down to? It comes down to refuge. Refuge, I don't use that word very much because I think that what it really is talking about is having a direction in our life, a direction in our life which is safe, which protects us from 
suffering. That's the whole point of, of refuge, protects us from suffering. So we're going in a safe direction in our life, so we reaffirm. This is the direction I'm going in my life. It has meaning, has purpose. I'm working in the direction of the Dharma. True stopping of all my disturbing emotions, all my unawareness, all my ignorance. I'm working in that direction to get rid of all this junk on my mental continuum that's causing so much trouble and to realize and actualize all the qualities, all the understanding, all the good qualities of heart and so on that will bring that stopping about, that true stopping about whether we're doing that just for our own sake or we're doing that for the sake of everybody. I mean, after all, the safe direction is both Hinayana and Mahayana. So, fine, whichever one. But that's the direction that I'm going in. That's the Dharma jewel. The way that the Buddhas have done it in full and the way that the Arya Sangha, highly realized Sangha, that's what the Sangha is talking about, have done it in part. So that's the goal that I'm seeking and why. Well, I'm disgusted and really don't want to continue suffering or I have, in addition to that, compassion for everybody else who has suffering. I mean, there's some emotion behind it. And this direction in our life, this safe direction, needs to be something which is really very, very deep, very internalized. This is what makes us a Buddhist, not just being a nice, kind person. It's in addition to being a kind person. And for this to be really deep and really sincere, this direction, it's not very easy because what it really requires is total conviction that it's possible to achieve this. If you don't think it's possible, then it's just wishful thinking for something that, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just fantasy, isn't it? I can become a Buddha? Come on, how can I become a Buddha? So as a a Buddhist, In the beginning, of course, we're not going to believe that it's possible. We might have faith based on who knows what, the charisma of a teacher or whatever, wishful thinking. But we need to work on it, work on becoming convinced that this is really possible to achieve these goals. If we're really convinced it's possible, then you can really put your full heart and energy into it. Otherwise, it's half-hearted. And it's going to require a great deal of understanding of the mind, the mental continuum, how the self exists, can't be an ego trip, and a proper understanding of what we call Buddha nature, the factors that will enable us to become a Buddha. Well, what does that really mean? So this is part of our work as a Buddhist, is to try to really understand all of these things. They're very, very important. So that this direction that we're going is something which becomes very, very stable in us. We're fully convinced, not only that I want to go in this direction, but that it's possible to achieve the goal. So we start the day with reaffirming this intention. And we end the day with a dedication, with reviewing what we've done during the day. Have I really followed this? How have I acted? We've acted against this. We've gotten angry, etc. To admit that regret, you know, purification. There's all sorts of things that we can do that help. And whatever positive force, whatever understanding we've gained, you know, dedicate that toward achieving these goals. So we reaffirm the goal, and I want to continue tomorrow as well. 
But it's important that this intention at the beginning of the day and dedication at the end of the day not be like two sides of a bookcase. That, you know, you just have something supporting it on this side and something supporting it on that side, and that's it. It shouldn't be like that. Tsongkhapa says this intention, this motivation needs to carry through the entire day, not just the beginning and not just the end, which means reminding ourselves of this during the day, remembering it. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a very lovely method for that. He has the mindfulness bell, which during the course of a day, a bell rings at random times, and that, you know, everybody stops for a few moments and regains their mindfulness of the intention, motivation, etc. So one of my students has programmed his cell phone so that the cell phone gives a beep at various times during the day, and he uses this as his mindfulness bell. So there are various methods that we can use to help us to remember this motivation if it's not something which comes to us automatically. There's also the custom to reaffirm our refuge, our safe direction, and make three prostrations in the morning when we get up and in the evening before we go to sleep. Very good, very helpful. Obviously, if we take an overnight flight on an airplane, we don't get out into the middle of the aisle and do prostration. If we can't do that, or we're in the army and in an army barrack or whatever, then you just hold your hands in a respectful position and imagine that you are prostrating. That's fine. It's the state of mind that's important. And then if we have the ability, then we would set up water bowls, offerings, etc. You have a little bit of uh, like an offering shelf or an altar. But before that, one sweeps the room. I mean, there's a whole set of preliminaries that one does. Sweeping the room, cleaning up. That's very important. The way that it's explained is that we're showing respect to the honored guests that are we're inviting to our meditation session, the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, etc., If Buddha was actually coming to our house physically, certainly we would sweep the floor and we would pick up our clothes and make the bed. So similarly, we do that before our morning meditation. So this is a uh, practice that we do, and it helps on another level because if our environment is clean and neat, the mind is influenced by that, and the mind becomes neat and clean if the environment around us is chaotic and messy that has an influence on our minds, on our way of thinking. So an orderly environment is helpful. Then we make some offerings. Usually it's water bowls. They don't have to be made of gold. They don't have to be made of silver. Milarepa just used his drinking cup, just something. And if we make an offering of food, you don't leave it on the altar until it gets rotten and then throw it away. You leave it for a day or maybe two days and then you eat it. And the water that uh, you offer in the bowls at the end of the day, either you use it to water the plants, but obviously you don't want to drown the plants by flooding them with water too much, but or pour it down the sink, but not down the toilet. In other words, we try to show respect for what we're doing. It's very important. It's not just respect for 
the Buddhism, bodhisattvas, it's respect for ourselves and respect for our spiritual path. Then having a daily practice, very, very important. By daily practice, I don't mean merely what we were saying, that you you practice all day long by trying to apply the teachings in our life, in real life situations, but also a formal meditation session. Now, what do we do during our formal meditation session? First of all, the environment. It's not necessary to have the incense and the music and elaborate everything. If you have that, fine, but don't make it into an ego pride trip. It's not necessary. Simple is always better. We need to, first of all, in our practice, quiet down and set a very strong intention. I mean, we already set our motivation, but set the intention that during this session, I'm going to try to not fall asleep, not get dull, and not just sit there and have mental wandering. It's very easy to skip that. We sit down and forget about, you know, any of the setting ourselves in the proper mental framework. And our attitude is, I'm going to be late for work and I just want to get through this as quickly as possible. And then you speed through it and thank goodness I finished. And maybe I've set the new speed record for going through my practice. and That's good. And then we go off and do our day. So daily practice gives us stability, gives us continuity in our lives. No matter what's going on in our lives, there's always one part of the day which remains stable. So having a daily practice is very helpful for that. Daily practice doesn't have to be long. It can be five minutes. doesn't matter. Just something. And what is always recommended is the seven-part practice, Shantideva outlines it very nicely. Great Indian master. We already started it with the prostration and making offerings, then openly admitting the mistakes that we've made, the shortcomings that we have, regretting them. I'm going to try not to repeat it, reaffirm my direction in life. I'm going to do something positive to counteract it. And then rejoicing in the positive things that others have done, that we have done, requesting the teachers to teach and not to go away, that I'm serious, I really want to go all the way to liberation and enlightenment. And then the dedication at the end, whatever positive force comes from this and from uh, everything that I and others have done may contribute not just to my own enlightenment, but to everybody's enlightenment. So we read over and again in all sorts of teachings, Indian, Tibetan, and so on. This is the most basic, fundamental Buddhist practice, the seven-part practice. Then in addition, you want to do mantras, you want to do any other type of meditation, fine. But this is the, the basis of it. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama always emphasizes, the what we really need the most is what's called analytical meditation, which is basically, at our stage, thinking over the teachings, taking some topic and thinking about it in terms of our personal, individual lives. For example, I'm having difficulty with this person at work, and then we analyze that. What do I find difficult? What's the problem? How do I deal with it? 
I need to develop patience. What are the teachings on patience? What is the method? We sit there and we practice being patient while we think of this person. That's Buddhist practice. It's exactly the word practice. We are practicing to be able to do that later in actual real-life situations. And then during the day, try to remember these teachings. Try to actually apply them. That's real Buddhist practice. Not just having Om Mani Pei screensaver on our computer or having the computer program so it repeats you know, the line Om Mani Pei going through the screen every second or whatever. I mean, come on. And then, as I say, at the end of the day, review what we've done. Certainly don't feel guilt, but I'm going to try better if I haven't done so well. And always remember the basic feature of samsara is that it goes up and down. Progress is never linear. It's never going to get better every day. No matter how hard we're trying, some days will go better, some days will go poorly, some days we'll feel like practicing, some days we won't. That is perfectly normal, and it's going to continue to happen until we become an arhat, a liberated being. That's going to be a long time from now. (laughs) That means we're not going to get rid of anger or greed until we become an arhat. That's very sobering. It may be less, but we're not going to get rid of it completely until then. So up until arhatship, it's going to go up and down. And what is the attitude that is most helpful in that situation? It's called equanimity. And that translates into the attitude of, so what? I don't feel like practicing. I'm in a bad mood. So what? You just go ahead anyway. What do I expect from samsara? Of course, I'm going to not feel like practicing some days. Of course, I'm going to get into a bad mood. So what? No big deal. And if I need to take a break for a little while, fine, no big deal. We have to avoid the two extremes of being too hard on ourselves or treating ourselves like a baby. But just go ahead no matter what. That's called the armor-like perseverance that protects you from any situation. You just go on and you use skillful means. You know, you learn from the Dharma. What are the skillful means for dealing with difficult situations? and apply them in practical life. I'll give you an example. I live on a busy corner in Berlin, and a couple years ago, they built underneath me, on the ground floor, a very, very popular cafe. And it is open from 7 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the morning, seven days a week. And in the summer, it's on a corner. My house is on a corner. And so there are tables outside on both sides of my house, people outside drinking beer, talking loudly, laughing, etc., till 3 o'clock in the morning every night. So after a short period of lying in bed at night and trying to go to sleep with all this noise and having visions of medieval times and having large vats of boiling tar that I can pour down on the people... Dismissing that as the solution, (laughs) then I remembered the teaching, give the victory to the others, accept the defeat on yourself. My kitchen is the only room in the house that doesn't face the street, and I move my mattress and put it on the floor of the kitchen, and I sleep in the kitchen the whole summer. And this way, the doors are closed, it's quiet, I 
very, very happy, it's comfortable, and I give the victory to the others. So very practical application of this teaching. Uh, no big deal, sleeping in the kitchen, so what? Put the mattress up against the wall during the day and put it down at night, no big deal. So, like that, we need to be inventive, creative with the teachings, apply them. And in order to do that, we need to know the teachings. And so, as part of daily practice, which is very, very helpful, is to read each day, if we can, list of the bodhisattva vows, the guidelines of how to deal with difficult situations, the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, the seven-point attitude training, the eight-verse attitude training, and these lojong texts are filled with very, very practical advice. These are the most practical teachings, and when you go through them each day, it not only helps you to be mindful of them, in other words, to remember them, but also, if you're facing a particular problem, then as you read through, you come up with what would be the most appropriate thing to apply, and then you stop there, and you think about it, and really decide how I'm going to apply this. Very, very useful, very practical. So, these are daily practices, how we practice Buddhism in the West. And I think it's appropriate to anybody in any situation, whether the West, whether the East, whether nowadays, whether in the past, or the future. And as I said, to get any results, we need to put in a lot of hard work, and it's not going to come cheaply. Nowadays, teachings are quite readily available. And, I mean, I was mentioning before, at a lot of Dharma centers or big events, you have to pay to get in, but also, like the example of my website, huge amount of Dharma teachings available there for free. So as long as you have a computer and access to the Internet, which is becoming easier and easier around the world, then you don't have to travel anywhere and you don't have to pay anything. You can just get all the teachings, or at least a lot of teachings, and it will just increase in the future. So is this defeating the purpose of the Buddhist training to train our personalities to really put in the effort to make a transformation? Would it be better to make the teachings not so easily available? You have to pay for everything. Keep them hidden and secret in some libraries that you can't get access to very easily. Well, you could make an argument for that, surely. But on the other hand, if the teachings are available for free, and more easily accessible everywhere, still you have to put in the hard work to actually make the time to read the teachings, to study them, to go through them, and so on. And when there are Dharma centers and there's no teacher at the Dharma center, as is the case in many places in the world still, then rather than spending the entire time together just chanting and playing bells and drums, it might be helpful. I mean, you can do that part of the time if you like. That's not a problem. But it might be nice that everybody reads something beforehand and comes in and discusses it, tries to understand, debate back and forth with each other. What have you understood from this? So regardless of how many benefits we have now in the modern time in terms of more easy access to the teachings, 
Nevertheless, we're still going to have to put in the hard work to understand them and internalize them. And there's no cheap way around that. So in this respect, there's nothing special about us practicing in the West. So we need to take advantage then of the opportunities that we have. And yes, as I say, be a kind person, but that's just the start. That's just the basis. We're really going to practice the Buddhist path. That means working toward liberation and enlightenment. So we need to understand what that is and develop the proper motivations for achieving that and become convinced that it actually is possible. So what questions do you have? The question concerns how do we become convinced of the possibility that we can actually achieve liberation and enlightenment. It has to do with understanding what do we mean by mind, the mental continuum, which is a continuity of mental activity. I'm not going to go into a detailed teaching here, but what are the basic characteristics of that mental activity that goes on moment to moment to moment with different object each moment, but nevertheless the actual defining characteristics are the same and is confusion, unawareness, anger, and so on, are they part of that essential nature of that mental activity or is it something which is what's called fleeting, in other words, like a cloud and can be removed. And so it really requires an understanding of the nature of mental activity or mind. And this requires not just deep study of the nature of the mind, what appearances are, how appearances arise, all these sort of things, but also some experience of trying to actually observe what's going on and to recognize what's going on in our daily experience, in the daily moment-to-moment. And also, I think what is important is the context of this type of study and practice, which is to understand what actually it means to be liberated and what actually enlightenment means. What are the qualities of it? If it's just a word, then that's too vague. So one needs to really learn what do we mean by liberation? What do we mean by enlightenment? And don't think it's easy. Very, very subtle points. So in the beginning, of course, we give what's called the benefit of the doubt. I don't really know, but I will assume that it is possible and study further and meditate further because I would really like to become convinced of this. I take it seriously and I will, for the moment, accept it. But I want to go deeper because even if it's not possible, and I don't really understand it, but going in that direction seems like a pretty good idea that (laughs) it's certainly from the little experience I have and from seeing people who have gone in that direction, they certainly have less problems and deal with life much better. And so based on that, even if it's not possible, aiming in that direction, going as far as possible, is pretty good. That's a good working basis to start with. And as one of my friends said very nicely, I don't know whether it's possible to achieve liberation or enlightenment And I don't know if His Holiness the Dalai Lama is actually a liberated being or enlightened being, 
But if I could become like him, like the Dalai Lama, and be able to deal with as many difficulties as he deals with, like having the whole Chinese nation against him and the unbelievable problems and things that he faces, if I could become like that and deal with such things like His Holiness deals, that would be enough. This is why it's said that for us it's very difficult to relate directly to the Buddhas. I mean, their qualities are just beyond imagination, but we can relate through the spiritual teacher. It's not just any spiritual teacher, not just some Lama who's done a three-year retreat and comes and teaches in a center. We're talking about the greatest of the great. That's the example that we want to look at in terms of how to relate to enlightenment and liberation. Whether they're liberated or not, how am I to say? But here's somebody really with outstanding qualities. Then gives us a great deal of a realistic example. I don't mean to say that all lamas who have done just a three-year retreat and come to the West are not qualified and not inspiring. I don't mean to say that. But often we can become quite disappointed with their conduct, with the way that they handle situations. So it's best to look at a really outstanding example, so the greatest of the great lamas. Since we have some access to them, we can go to their teachings. Their teachings are available on Internet and so on. Same thing with somebody who has gotten a Geshe degree or even somebody who is a Tuku, a reincarnate lama, Rinpoche doesn't mean that they are necessarily of the highest quality. So it always says in the teachings, examine the teacher for a long time. That's important. That's another point about practicing Dharma in the West. Last point, because we need to end, is that often all sorts of lamas and tukus and geishas and kempos and whatever come through our cities, some cities more than other cities, and they even give initiations. And we've never heard of this person. We don't know anything about them. And yet there is this event which is happening, and many of us just go because other people are going or because it seems as though we should go. That's not really proper. It's the same thing with so much being available on the Internet. Just because something is available, like somebody coming to our city and giving an initiation, or just because it's on the Internet, or just because it's a book that you could buy, doesn't mean that it is reliable. You have to check up. Right, find out who is this Lama, ask. And for the first time, it's the same thing like looking at something on the Internet or, or a book. You can read it. You can go to the initiation. That doesn't mean that you actually take the initiation and seriously accept this person as your tantric master. That's something very different. You want to go? Check it out. That's fine. You read something on the Internet. Well, is this garbage? Is this reliable? Who wrote it? It's garbage. You forget about it. So same thing. You're going to find lamas who come who are more qualified, some less qualified. Even those who are qualified they might not resonate with you. You might not have feel any connection with them. Check it out. Just because somebody has a title or just because somebody knows how to perform an initiation ritual, that's not sufficient as a qualification to be your tantric teacher. So rather than saying that in the West 
the particular problem that we have is not so much as available. I think it's just the opposite. Our problem is that too much is available. And how do we discriminate when you have, this I think is terrible, that there are 300 different brands of Buddhism because every Lama who comes starts their own center. There's 300 of them available, either internet or wherever. How do you choose? This is a big problem. And this is different from what's been in the past. And I don't have the magic answer to that question. Just because something comes up number one in Google when you search doesn't mean that it's the best. So we have to use our intelligence, our discrimination to check it out and be patient and not be premature in deciding that this is, this is for me, this is the best. So let's end here with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.